Revelation, turn there with me. I will go faster than normal. I know normal's fast, but we'll try to get through this text and then have our baptism. So turn with me to the book of Revelations. We are in chapter 3 together. Actually, we're wrapping up our series this morning, uh, looking at the last written letter to the seven churches. We've been saying all along the book of Revelation, although it speaks of, of, of things like heaven and hell and end times, it is not primarily about those things. It is primarily about uh, uh, and the proclamation of who Jesus is and his glory and his majesty and his authority, sovereignty as the, as the warrior lamb king who is coming again to reign and to rule and to establish his eternal kingdom. We actually saw that in the prologue in chapter 1. Also in chapter 1, Jesus tells the Apostle John, who's exiled on a barren, rocky, volcanic island called Patmos, to write this book of Revelation, to send the whole book, which included the seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, specific churches with specific people, with specific struggles, difficulties, some good things, some bad things going on in the church, but real historic churches. One thing we know about the church, because we know about our church, it's not a perfect church, because there are redeemed sinners in the church, as there is today. So the question we said last week is not, can the church be perfect, but can the church be faithful? That's the question. And we learned from the second letter to the city uh, church in the city of Smyrna and the sixth letter to the church in the city of Philadelphia that yes, people, even uh, sinners gathering together, redeemed sinners, can be faithful. In those two letters, the second and the sixth letter, there are only commendations from Christ to the church. Four out of the other seven, there's commendation, but there is also condemnation, judgment, and warnings. There's only one church of the seven churches where Jesus has nothing good to say to the church, and that is the last and final church that we are relooking at today, the church of the Laodiceans. These actual churches were probably established uh, by the preaching of the word uh, through Ephesus. Chapter 19, the book of Acts said the gospel went out from Ephesus to all of Asia Minor. And we've learned as we looked at these churches, the progression of sin that Jesus is dealing with. There's churches that compromised. There were churches that lost their first love. There were churches that we saw last week was mostly dead or two weeks ago, mostly dead, slightly alive. There were a few people in that that were, were faithful. And we see this clear progression of sin in the churches until we get to the last church. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 and I will read to you the infallible authoritative word of God. Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may have uh, clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and to and and salve that to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice opens the door I will come into him 
and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down on my father's throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, let us hear what you have to say to this church. We ask your blessing, blessing upon the reading of your word and now the preaching of your word. That you would get glory and honor and dominion that belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Four movements, we'll go through them hopefully quickly. Although I do love the sun. Not just the S-O-N. The declaration of Christ, the instruction to the church. You got this outline in the sheet you were handed in. The, the instruction to the church, the liberation of Christ. And then finally, the invitation that Christ gives to the church. So number one, let's look at the declaration of Christ. As with all the letters, all the seven letters, Jesus declares something about himself, revealing his nature to the church. And there's a connection between what he reveals about himself and the actual what's going on in the city, the culture of the city. In Laodicea, or Laodicea, there's no difference, just like through all the other churches. So let me go through quickly about this city. Uh, it is situated on the Lucas River Valley with 8,000-foot mountains to the south and to the north. She actually got her name from the 3rd century, a man by the name of Antichus II. He named it after his soon-to-be divorced wife, Laodicea. Probably one of the wealthiest cities in Asia Minor at the time. Um, we, we talked about earthquakes. This is important. Uh, These the, the cities in Asia Minor were, were along a, a vault, and there were a lot of earthquakes. There's two major ones in 17 AD and another one in 60. It destroyed Sardis. We saw that. It, it demolished Philadelphia, and it, and it also did a ton of damage to Laodicea. The difference is all the other cities invited Rome in and took their money to help rebuild their city. But Laodicea said, we don't want your money, Rome. They were known for their banking and manufacturing. They were known for their pride and independence and self-sufficiency. They were also known to produce a rare black wool uh, and had an important medical school there uh, that produced this eye salve uh, known to cure eye diseases. It was a city that lay in two major trade routes. Ten miles from Laodicea Laodicea is a city called Colossae. I'll talk to you about that in a minute. But unfortunately, in this city, in this rich city, there was a very, very, very bad poor water supply. They could not supply their own water. So you have lousy water, big fat banks, stylish garments, eye doctors with ointment to cure eye disease with a big attitude of, I got this. And Jesus speaks to them and says to the church, to the angel, the messenger of the church in Laodicea, write these words, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Three things Jesus mentions. He takes it from chapter one and he brings it up again here. Important because it You'll see why to this city. He says he is the amen. We we hear that term often, right? The amen. We say amen. Well, do you know what it means? When we say amen, it means that what is being being said is being affirmed to be true, to be solid, to to be valid, to be certain, to be reliable. It's appropriate for men and women to see the word of God, to see the works of God and say amen. But Jesus uses it here at the beginning of his statement, referring to his uh, uh, uniqueness, reflecting his uniqueness as God, as the second 
person of the Trinity. That's why he begins with the Amen, the words of the Amen. You see, back in Isaiah chapter 65, God said those same words about himself to Isaiah. He was the God of Amen. And Jesus identifying himself with the God of the Old Testimony, uh, Old Testament, guaranteeing that all that he is embodied and all that he speaks is true. He said the same thing, verily, verily, I say unto you. It's kind of the same thing. Begins a statement, it's true, and he ends it with amen. It is true. It is the affirmation. Jesus is the affirmation of God, the firm, fixed, certain, faithful, unchangeable amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God have find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. He is God's amen. Secondly, we see here, faithful and true witness. And here's the point. Some witnesses may tell the truth, but they prove to be unreliable. They don't show up to give testimony. Others may show up to give testimony, yet they are misleading in their testimony. But Jesus is the faithful and the true witness. He is both. He gives testimony and he perpetually speaks the truth. He, not the church of Laodicea, is reliable. Jesus, the one who speaks the truth. Jesus, not the church of Laodicea, has a trustworthy and faithful witness. That's what he's getting at. Look what he says last about himself. He describes himself as the beginning of God's creation. You see that? Verse 14, the beginning of God's creation. Now, You have to understand, Jesus is not saying he's the beginning of God's creation, meaning that he is the first one created in God's creation. The beginning of God's creation does not mean that. How do we know that? Well, according to Scripture. Jesus already said in Revelation, just as the Father says of himself, Jesus says of himself, he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, before all eternity and all in eternity into eternity. Jesus says that about himself. We know that that's not what it means. And here's some important information to understand. Colossae was 10 miles away. And in Colossae, if you read the book of Colossians, you know that they had some real struggles and some real heresy being taught in the church. Colossae, 10 miles away from Laodicea. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Now, Paul, we don't know, was ever in Laodicea, but we know he was in Colossae. This is what he writes in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, one who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in prayer that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he worked hard for you, Colossae, and for those in the, at the Laodicea church and in Hierapolis. So Paul mentions it. Chapter 4, verse 15 of Colossians. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter, this Colossian letter, has been read among you, send it to the church of the Laodiceans. And see that the letter there was sent to you. There's a sharing of letters. You see, the problem of the church in Colossae, the Colossian church, was this infection, this damnable infection and heresy that denied the full deity and eternality of the Son. 
In fact, the words in our text, beginning of God's creation, beginning is the word arche, is familiar to the church of Colossae. Let me just read one more passage to you. He, Jesus, Paul writes, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jehovah Witnesses like to use that term and say, see, Jesus was the first being created in creation. It says he is the firstborn of all creation. If they use that verse, mark it in your Bibles, just say to them, read the next verse. You don't need to be a scholar. Read the next verse. I love doing that to them. Maybe I shouldn't, but I do. Here's the next verse. For by him, stop him. For by him, what do you mean by him? Who's him? They'll say Jesus. For by Jesus, all things were created. I said, stop right there. All things were created. You just said he was the first created being, the firstborn of creation. Well, all things don't mean all things. I'm like, okay. Maybe in your vocabulary it doesn't, but to me, if Jesus created all things, he can't be created. Keep reading. For by him all things were created in heaven, on the earth, visible, invisible, thrones of dominions, or rulers, arcade, that's our, ver- that's our word, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, arcade, again, firstborn from the dead, that everything in him he might have preeminence. This is what's happening. Jesus is revealing himself not as the first created being, but the agent of creation, the ruler, the originator, the preeminent one over creation. He's telling the church then and today that he is Lord over both the material and the spiritual realm. The heresy of Colossae, we see it with Arius in AD 325, modern-day Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. They like to say there was a time which the sun was not. Jesus shows up and says, everything was created by me. I possess and control all things. It was never a time that I did not exist. I am the ruler and authority and sovereign over creation. I am preeminent over creation. And our Lord corrects that. He's the beginning. He's the creator. He's originated. He's the second person of the Trinity. And Christ is saying to this church who boasts on their riches, listen, you don't have nothing. I am the one who reigns and rules and all things we created for me and by me. I am the title, amen of God. I am the truth, supreme ruler. That's his description. Look at the instruction. Jesus gets straight to the issue. He gets straight to instructs them on what's really going on. He speaks of his disgust and his deception. Verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were neither either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now at first you may be thinking, I know I did when I first read Revelation as a young believer, that Jesus is saying either be hot on fire for me, love me, worship me, adore me, or be cold, deny me. Do something. Get off the fence. That's not what he's saying. As I mentioned, Laodicea lacked its own water supply. Heropolis, about six miles northwest from Laodicea, was, was famous for hot springs. It got up to 95 degrees in, in uh, uh, the, the waters. They used to have these spas that were there. And people would come all over and have this uh, um, um, 
this this health this medicinal value and health spas in the region it was it was hot it was warm it was good for you miles away in Colossae there was cold water refreshing uh, cold and pure water 10 miles away 6 miles heat 10 miles cold water and the problem that lied in Laodicea is they had this aqueduct that would bring the water into the city and it was made of of pipe and uh, a stone barrel pipe it was it was put under the ground Many people think because people could be, uh, it could be vulnerable. People can tap into the, to the water system and hurt the city. By the time the water came down and got to the city, it was lukewarm. It was lukewarm. Archaeologists um, found out now as they did more research that there was this thing called calcium carbonate content. So when the water was coming down through these stone pipes, by the time it got, not only was it, was it lukewarm, it was impure, emetic. That means it caused vomiting. It, it made you nauseous when you drank it. The point of lukewarm water here in this text is not only that that lukewarm is not helpful, it's not purposeful, it doesn't have any meaning compared to hot water, which is helpful, cold water, which is helpful, but it also made you sick, nauseous, emetic. Everyone in the church who read that letter, all the churches who read that letter that know about the Laodicean church knew exactly what that meant. Jesus, in his disgust, says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, the word spit is vomit. Sorry. But that's what it means. I will spit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. He was disappointed over the church who left their first love. He was, he was somewhat disappointed and happy with the church who compromised. He was really unhappy with the church who floated along Christian, uh, excuse me, sinful culture. He was irritated with the mostly dead church. This church, he says, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. You make me want to vomit. If you want to make Jesus sick, deny his full deity. Deny his lordship over creation. Deny the second person of the Trinity. Deny that he is the creator and king and reigning ruler over all creation. He'll say, you disgust me, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. And if that's not bad enough, look at their deception. For you say, verse 17, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. (laughs) Like, tell us what you really mean, Jesus. He's saying you brag about how great your church is. Oh, you should come to our church. We, we got the corner of truth. Our church is where it's happening. Look at our building. Look at our budgets. Look at our program. We're the shakers and movers. Jesus says, <laughs> no. You are deceived and he instructs them what's really true. He says they are wretched. Wretched means unfortunate, pathetic. He is, they are pitiable, object of extreme pity, desperate in need of compassion. They are poor. The word poor is not just don't have a lot. It's, it's, it's extreme poverty. Poking the eye at a city that, that claimed wealth and commerce and banking. They were blind. Again, a slap in the face. They, 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 they had this medicine that helped cure the eyes. And they were naked. Yeah, you have fine wool clothing, but you know what? You're naked. Paige Patterson sums it up well. He says this. What a devastating judgment 
to suggest to a church with a high view of itself that is in a, that it is in a wretched condition, the object of pity, poverty stricken, and everything that really matters, blind as to vision and discernment and naked as to the exposure before God and the world. End quote. So let me ask you all folks. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't really thought much past your physical life. And maybe you haven't really thought that, yes, I have a lot today. But maybe, just maybe, you're here this morning and you don't see the condition that you're really in. It's time this morning to hear the disgust of Christ and the grace. Can I point something out to you? Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. It doesn't say, I have spit you out of my mouth. What does it say? I will. That's grace. That's grace. I will spit you out of my mouth. Even this church is given the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. No matter where you are this morning, there is that opportunity to come and be forgiven of your sins. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the gospel? We come to realize that we are miserable and pathetic in desperate need of compassion spiritually poor and bankrupt, blind to our need and naked and vulnerable without clothing. And then Christ opens our eyes to see the beauty of his substitutionary death that pays the penalty for our sins. He opens our eyes and he has compassion on us, forgives us. He clothes us in his righteousness. He, he gives to us the riches of his grace. That's what Christ is calling us to. Declaration of Christ's instruction to the church. Third, the deliberation of of Christ. Jesus has already introduced himself to Laodicea as a true and faithful witness. And now he gives them the faithful and true testimony as he deliberates his early instruction. Look what it says in verse 18. I counsel you, Greek present tense, ongoing. I've counseled you in your condition to buy from me refined by, uh, excuse me, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve be, salve be anoint your eyes so that you may see. I, I counseled you already. I'm continually to counsel you already. Don't you know, you think you have everything, but come to me, come to me. I will give you what you need. Family, how beautiful is that? Again, how beautiful is that? He's offering this truth, the, the things that is necessary to a church <laughs> that deserves nothing. And he's extending his hand of grace. He's calling those who think they're rich but are poor beggars to come and buy gold from me, Jesus says. Refined by fire. What does that mean? That's genuine faith. Peter writes uh, in First Peter 1.7 that true faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is appealing to the people and he invites them to come. If you want riches, come to me. For what would profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeits his soul? Next, look what he says. You want gold? Come to me. If you want to be truly clothed, you're not going to do it with the black wool garments that are famous, that made you rich. No, you need to be clothed with what? White garments. White garments. To clothe yourself and deal with your shame, deal with your nakedness. 
Nakedness in the ancient world was a sign of judgment and humiliation. And to receive fine clothing was, was, a, was a sign or a symbol of honor and accept, acceptance. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that white garments symbolize the imputed righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that he gives us by faith, not our own. It is counted and imputed to us as believers. And then Revelation says the acts the, the white robes, the white garments are the acts of believers. Laodicean church walked around spiritually naked, completely unaware of their humiliation. And what they needed was the white righteousness of Christ to clothe them. You know, we see this profound correlation between clothing, between clothing uh, and shame in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve were physically naked. They were innocent, without sin, without shame, nothing to hide and nothing to fear. After they sinned, they did what? They tried to clothe themselves. Self-reliance, self-atonement, to deal with their sin, to deal with their shame, to deal with their separation. They tried to clothe themselves. What did God do? By grace alone, God does for them what they tried and could not do for themselves. The Lord God made, chapter 3, verse 21 of Genesis. The Lord God made for Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. God kills an animal. Blood was shed. They're clothed by grace. Substitutionary sacrifice is the gospel. His name is Jesus. Self-atonement is trying to clothe yourself. And this church, who's been clothed in fine, black, fashionable garments, Jesus counseled and says, the only covering you really need is my righteousness. Also, he, clothes, he says, to get from me a salve, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They had this, as I mentioned, it's called uh, Phrygian, Phrygian powder. It was a stone that they, 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 they crumbled up and made into an ointment and it would bring healing. And Jesus says, you have this famous ointment but you can't see this famous ointment will not solve your spiritual blind condition the blindness of their self-deception could only be remedied by the great physician the healing ointment made available to jesus then they could see have vision and clarity and discernment and family honestly what we need as we look at this text is is honest evaluation Christ deliberates and delivers his verdict. He knows, he sees their spiritual complacency, their spiritual deception, their spiritual blindness are like spiritual cataracts that shut out the light of spiritual sight. And oh, can we be a people, a church, who cry out to the Lord, show me your ways, show me by your word, through your spirit, my true spiritual condition. Reveal to me my blind spots, O Lord, that I may confess my sins, repent for my sins, and run to you to have my sins washed away. And when that happens, we can embrace verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, fervent, hot, passionate, and repent. Jesus says, listen, I'm coming down hard on you, but listen, it's not because I don't love you. It's actually the opposite. It's because I do love you. I, I do love you. I reprove those I love. I discipline those I love. 
The fifth church now is called to repent, to, to have a metanoia, change of mind, change of attitude, change of action concerning sin. Recognize agreeing with God. What I'm doing is sinful. What I'm doing is hurting my relationship with Jesus. Turn from it and forsake it. We talk about repentance. We talk about faith. We talk about it many times in the context of, of our entrance into our, the family, into the gospel. But it should be our companion family, brothers and sisters, all our life as we walk with Jesus. Never grow out of it. Never grow out of confessing and repenting and receiving the forgiveness of God. Love is not cruel, but I'll tell you, love can be sometimes very stern. And the church that Jesus is calling, he's calling us as well to consider our true spiritual state and turn and repent and believe and know that his loving discipline that instructs us, leads us to his throne, to the cross. And if we reject his loving discipline, he will spit us out. But if we receive it and acknowledge it and, and, and be uh, uh, forgiven by our sins, it says he will stay with us. And look at lastly, the invitation to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I'm sure many of you heard at some point that this, <laughs> that passage of scripture means that Jesus is standing at the door and knocking on your heart. He's a gentleman. That's why he knocks. I don't know if you ever heard that. I have. He's a gentleman. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. And when you open up the door, he will come in and dine with you. Usually mentioned in an evangelistic, you know, preaching the gospel of people coming to faith. That's how you become a Christian. He's standing at the door. You got to let him in. Now, before we get into how bad that is, contextually, let me say a couple of things. One thing, actually, I'll, I'll say uh, about that text. Number one, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning and you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you have turned from your sin, you have embraced Christ by faith, it is because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that enabled you to see the sovereignty, glory, and beauty of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Okay? It is not because you opened up the door to, the, to your heart, to the knocking Jesus, it is because Jesus kicked the door open by the Holy Spirit to enable you to see the beauty and glory of Christ and receive Him as Lord and Savior. Dead hearts don't open doors. We make real choices. We make real responses to the gospel. But it is the result of the awakening of the spirit, the renewal call and invitation of God to the gospel. Okay? Just want to get that out there. I feel better now. Second, contextually, the context is actually Christ speaking first and foremost to the whole church, not the individual. And he's not even in the church. He's saying, listen, y'all, I'm outside. I'm knocking on the door. I'm out here. Y'all think you got a great in there. You got it all together. Y'all think you're, you're rich and you have everything. You're the greatest church in the world. I'm outside. I'm not even in there. He's figuratively standing outside the, and standing and knocking on the door. I stand, perfect tense, pointing to an action complete, continuing. He, he stood firm and he's knocking. And knocking is continuous in the Greek. So you see that the Lord in his love Standing firm and fixed and knocking and knocking and knocking, looking to have fellowship with the church. That's the picture we see here. Jesus inviting this church to realize that their worldly riches, their worldly comfortability, their, their own self-sufficiency 
has cut them actually out of his life. And he says, look at the text, anyone who hears my voice, one heart, one humble heart, one repentant heart, one person to open to the words of Jesus, let the master in and I will come and eat with you. I will come dine with you. That word speaks of the meal at the end of the day where there's fellowship and communion, union, intimacy, affection. Jesus says, I'm going to invite you in. In fact, the text tells us that Jesus is the host. He sets the table. We're his guests dining away. He has provided for us. So the question for us, church, as we come to a conclusion, is are we inside or outside? Are we embracing, loving, honoring, and enthroning and following the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he knocking on the outside trying to get in? I pray Christ is welcome here. And now, like the other letters, he ends to the faithful, to the conquerors, to sit with me on a throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Obviously, this is uh, symbolic. I don't think all of us will fit on a literal throne. Just saying Uh, the word to sit with means any and every blessing we receive in kingdom life. We receive by the virtue of our union with Christ. And so many ways, it's so hard to see this reality. I don't think we really can. This truth that Jesus has a place for us to sit with him in authority. Actually, the word of God tells us we have the privilege to judge the world, that we will reign with him, 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him, Revelation 5.10. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus says, you will sit with me. You will reign and rule with me. Do you know how we know that promise is to be true? Look at the next verse. Oh, look what it says in that verse. We will sit with him because he has reigned. He has ruled. I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Listen to me and we'll close. Jesus Christ offers that to believers because he won the right to reign, to rule because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Because he was victorious over sin, died as our substitute, risen from the dead, seated on his father's throne, granting the right and authority as the God-man to sit with his father at his right hand, he then extends it to us who are faithful, who will continue to the end, who are faithful, that we will reign with him. And by our union and by our identification with him, in his person and work, as we continue drawing strength from him and his life, we will share and reign and rule as a reward for being faithful. Family, think about that today. How amazing that passage is. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit is saying, what can we apply to our lives? How can we apply this message to the church? How can we evaluate our responses we learn and apply these messages? As Ricky and his rest of the band can come on up, let me close with this. Family, listen. One more 30 seconds. We don't want to be a useless church without purpose, being lukewarm and deceived about our spiritual condition. We want to respond to the King of King with faith, trusting in the amen, relying on his mercy, relying on his strength, relying on his grace. Family, we must commit ourselves to relying on Jesus, not our stuff. 
We must trust in Jesus, not our own resources. We must see the things, see things the way Jesus sees them, not as the world sees them. We must be clothed with his righteousness, what he offers, not the clothing of this world. We want to hear Jesus not say, you make me sick, but well done, good and faithful servant. Let's go to him for gold, for garments, for sight, for safety, for he is all we need. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. Out of my sickness, into thy health. Talking about spiritual sickness, the spiritual health. My wanting, I come. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come. Let us respond with our whole hearts in faith together.